Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Six hundred and fifty million people across the world watched one of the great American achievements of the century on their television sets. There was Neil Armstrong in his bulbous white spacesuit, gingerly stepping off the lunar module down onto the surface of the moon. Soon after, he and his spacesuit twin, Buzz Aldrin, plunged a flagpole into the dusty surface and unfurled the stars and stripes. But the satellite dish that transmitted man's small step onto the moon wasn't in Houston or Cape Canaveral, but in the hills south of Canberra at a tracking station called Honeysuckle Creek. The giant leap for mankind, an iconic American moment, was shared with the world via Australia. It's one of the many ways Australia has assisted American endeavours over the past century or so. Now, the US is counting on the same support as tensions rise with China. I'm John Prideaux, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, is Australia America's closest ally? We have no greater friend, no greater partner, no greater ally than Australia, declared Anthony Blinken, America's Secretary of State, during a recent visit down under. If America were ever to go to war with China over Taiwan, Australia would be both a strategic launchpad for American troops and, US officials hope, an ally in combat. How is the growing threat from China reshaping America's relationships in the Indo-Pacific? With me this week to discuss America's alliance with Australia are Charlotte Howard in New York and Anton Lagardia, The Economist's diplomatic editor, who's also in New York this week because the UN General Assembly, UNGA, is underway. Idris, of course, is off in Japan at the moment. Anton, how are you finding New York? Gridlocked as it always is in September every year, as leaders descend on the city and roads are cut off when you least expect them. But apart from that, delightful. I'm so pleased to hear that you find New York delightful. If Idris were here, he'd be finding all sorts of ways to insult our fair city, but you have not. I have to say, I saw something funny yesterday, which was police attempting to blockade midtown yuppies during the evening commute. And it was so interesting to watch all these people think they were above the law and come up with ever more elaborate ways to skip across the street as the police tried to restrain them. And I think it finally occurred to this cohort that rules actually apply to them too. But it took about 15 minutes. That's very good. 
Well, we're delighted to have Anton here for this episode because his reporting, a trip he took to Australia, embedded with the US military, has inspired it. We wanted to do an Australia episode partly because we haven't looked at the US-Australia relationship before and also because it turns out we have lots of checks and balance listeners down under. So this one is for you. Before we go any further, just a quick programming note. Thank you to everyone who's sent in questions about our new podcast subscription. We'll answer some of those later in the show. Okay, Anton, over to you. Could you perhaps begin by telling us a little bit about the trip you took with Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, earlier this year? I spent a lot of time reporting on how America is handling the growing rivalry with China in the time that I've been here. And time and again, I've been struck by how the Australians are almost always in the thick of things in the Indo-Pacific. One senior official told me in a conversation, the Australians really are our best friends in the world. Coming from Britain, that was a surprise. And so I wanted to go to Australia to find out more about the nature of that relationship. The Australian Honour Guard gave Lloyd Austin a warm welcome when he visited Gallipoli Barracks in Brisbane. The American Secretary of Defence was flanked by his Australian host, Richard Marles, as the band played. At one point, a kookaburra, symbol of Australia, joined in. Half joyful, of course, but maybe half mocking. The two men were preparing for an annual meeting of their respective defence and foreign ministers, known as Osmin. But there was nothing routine about this year's event. The great mateship, as the two countries like to call their alliance, is being reinvented to confront a rising China. We're living in incredibly challenging times. That only underscores how vitally important it is for the United States to have this remarkable alliance, this remarkable friendship with uh, Australia. The next day at the Osman meeting, Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, addressed reporters at an outdoor press conference. We have no greater or more valuable ally. I think that's only been reconfirmed by the, uh, the talks we've had over the last couple of days. As did Penny Wong, Australia's foreign minister. The work that we are engaged in in these discussions today is about operationalising our alliance, our partnership for these times. These times with many challenges. It's been two years since both countries, along with the United Kingdom, announced the so-called AUKUS partnership. This includes a generation-long effort to arm Australia with nuclear-powered, but crucially not nuclear-armed, submarines. And while they wait for those subs to come into operation, Lloyd Austin gave details of how the U.S. is now increasing its defense presence down under. We're deepening our force posture cooperation with Australia, upgrading critical air bases in the Northern Territory, and pursuing important infrastructure projects at new locations. And taken together, these initiatives will strengthen our ability to respond to crisis in the region while enhancing our interoperability. Behind the jargon is a commitment to deep military cooperation in all fields, air, land, sea, space, and cyberspace. Australia is upgrading its military bases to host more American forces and is arming itself with weapons that can threaten China. Troops from both countries are also conducting extensive joint exercises together and with lots of other countries in the region. The seriousness of it all became grimly apparent twice over the summer when four Australian and then three American service personnel 
died in separate aircraft crashes. The Allies are keen on symbols. Earlier in July, a new warship, the USS Canberra, looking a bit like a spaceship, sailed into Sydney Harbour, accompanied by its Australian namesake. It's the first time an American warship has been commissioned in a foreign country. The two countries are useful to each other, Australia as a strategic launchpad for the US and the Indo-Pacific, and America as a source of protection for its ally down under. Not everyone in Australia is so keen. There are worries about the costs of the enterprise, about Australia's sovereignty, and about the risk of attack. In general, though, most Australians seem to feel that the bigger danger is the growth of a hostile China. Anton, before we get into talking about Australia and America's partnership with Australia, I have a journalism question for you. You've done a lot of travel now with the American military. You've done trips to Guam, to Australia, I think to Hawaii. I'm sure I'm missing a few. What do you get out of those trips embedded with the military and traveling around with folks like Lloyd Austin that you can't get from showing up to Pentagon press conferences and reporting in America? An obvious answer is that you get better access to the thinking of senior officials who travel with Lloyd Austin. The Secretary of Defense himself is a very cautious man. Nevertheless, you do pick up things just from being there. I mean, for instance, he stopped in Papua New Guinea, and it turns out that his father had served in Papua New Guinea. This is a story nobody knew about. And he wanted to keep quiet. He's a shy, retiring fellow, but the Papua New Guinea's prime minister let the cat out of the bag during the joint press conference saying he was welcoming the second Lloyd Austin to Papua New Guinea. So you get some of that sense of the man and you also get a sense of the policy and the thinking behind the policy when you spend so much time confined in an aluminium tube. And the other thing you get is the sense of the sheer scale of the Pacific. It is incredibly large. It takes a very long time to fly across it. And you realize the military difficulty that would be involved should America ever be involved in another war in the Pacific. Anton, so in that context, I'm keen to ask you more about Australia, because from America's perspective, Australia does seem like a useful partner in some respects. It's not really because of its people, right? I was struck by a figure in your piece that it has only 58,000 people in its armed forces compared with over a million in America's. So is it really just about its geography and its stance towards China, i.e. it takes the China threat seriously and it has this great location and that most of Australia can't be reached by Chinese missiles and it has a big country across which to distribute forces? What is so interesting and useful about Australia to the United States in this enormous region, as you just outlined? I think it's three broad things. One of them is just a sort of sense of history of these two countries that have, you know, fought together against Japan in the Second World War and are now rekindling their alliance to deal with another rising Asian power. There's a great degree of trust because the Australians are part of the Five Eyes Alliance of Intelligence Agencies. So they share a huge amount of information. They know how to keep secrets, usually, and are very comfortable working with each other. The second thing is a shared strategic perspective, the sense that the Australians get the threat posed by China, as America does. 
If you read the strategic review, they say things like, you know, America is no longer the unipolar power in the Indo-Pacific. The world is changing very rapidly. We, the Australians, have to do more. And we are no longer so safe as we have been in the whole period since the end of the Cold War. And indeed, during much of the Cold War, the Australians felt quite safe. The third thing is, as you mentioned, geography. This notion of the Goldilocks zone, which is that Australia is close to the focus of any possible fighting in future, close enough to project power into Asia, but far enough to keep American forces relatively safe, out of range of most Chinese weapons. The way one American put it to me is that we could not go to war with China without Japan, but we can't think of going to war against China without Australia. So they're there, they're brothers in arms, they see the world the same way, and they help America think about Southeast Asia in particular because the Australians are deeply embedded in the region. There's also another dimension to this, Anton, isn't there, which is how Australia fits into America's strategy for containing China in the Pacific and the second island chain Could you perhaps tell us a little bit about that? Pentagon people still look at the map in terms of island chains. The first island chain runs from Japan through Taiwan, the Philippines, and down to Malaysia. The second island chain runs further east, goes from Japan through the Marianas, and then down to Papua New Guinea and ultimately Australia. And as in the Second World War, the other consideration is that if Australia is going to be this strategic launch pad for us, then the access route to Australia become really important, as they were in the Second World War. And therefore, you're seeing this interesting positional play between the Americans and the Chinese and the islands that surround Australia. The Chinese have signed a security pact with the Solomon Islands, which is, you know, where the Battle of Guadalcanal was fought. And then the Americans have responded with a security pact with Papua New Guinea, further around anti-clockwise, which is also the site of very bitter fighting during the Second World War. So that's a kind of the island chain mindset. And what the Americans have been doing is trying to deal with the fact that they don't have NATO, right? They don't have a alliance with mutual defense in which everybody defends everybody. What they have is a series of bilateral relationships with important countries like Japan, with Australia, and so on, and the Philippines. And what they're trying to do is to stitch things together with minilateral deals, little arrangements that they call a lattice work that collectively starts to sort of look like a sort of more coherent defense strategy. And what you find is that the Australians are often at the heart of those little ad hoc deals. So, for example, they're part of the quad between America, India, Japan, and Australia. They're also part of a separate quad with the Philippines instead of India. There is a growing military relationship between America, Japan, and Australia, not least because Australia has a lot of land, very large military ranges, where they can test new missiles, do flying operations, and so on. They just had a very large exercise in July with a dozen-odd countries. So for lots of reasons, they're right there in the thick of it. That's really interesting context. Thank you. We will go back to the first time a US president visited Australia in a moment. But first, a reminder, from the middle of October, to carry on listening to Checks and Balance and all our other podcasts, you'll either need to have a subscription to The Economist or to sign up for Economist Podcasts Plus. Charlotte, we had a few questions from listeners about this after we talked about Podcasts Plus on last week's show. So I'm going to send them your way. One of the most common questions we received was whether our podcast will only be accessible from The Economist app 
or from economist.com, or whether it will work on lots of other platforms. Yes, we had two questions on this from Al and Curtis. Thank you for listening. And the answer is that you can listen on any platform. You can listen on Spotify. You can listen on Apple. You can listen on our app. So you can listen however you like. And we're so glad that you will listen. One other question we got is what happens to ads if you're a subscriber? And the answer to that is on any episode that's exclusive to subscribers, so the vast majority of Chex episodes, there will be no ads. It's not us reading mattress advertisements. There'll be no conventional ad role in the middle of the episode, beginning or the end. There may be a brief note of support from a sponsor, but other than that, absolutely no ads. Yes. So if you're somebody who finds having your podcast interrupted by adverts annoying, then you're going to like this. To sign up, please go to economist.com slash podcasts plus. You can also find the link for that in the show notes. There's an old song in the United States which says, there is no place like home. Well, I want to change that. There's no place like home unless it is Australia. Australia was familiar to Lyndon Johnson. He'd served there during World War II, and much of the landscape reminded him of the plains of his Texan childhood. But his presence there was something new. For the people of Australia, this was the first time that the man from the White House had ever come their way. In June 1966, LBJ became the first sitting president to visit Australia. He passed through five cities in three days, part of a longer tour around the Asia-Pacific region, and received a rapturous reception. In Sydney, the welcomes at Canberra, Wellington and Melbourne were eclipsed, as over 1,250,000 Australians lined the route of the presidential motorcade. Johnson was there to shore up support for his war in the East. I believe there's a light at the end of what has been a long and lonely tunnel. I believe it for this reason. There is a widening community of people who are beginning to feel responsible for what is happening in Vietnam. This sense of common destiny is growing. At America's request, Australia had sent military advisors to Vietnam in 1962 to make the war appear more like an international effort than an American crusade. Then, in April 1965, as hostilities escalated, the Prime Minister, Sir Robert Menzies, announced Australia would send combat troops to Vietnam for the first time. By the time of Johnson's 1966 visit, Australia had a new leader, Menzies' former deputy, Harold Holt. During a visit to the White House earlier that year, Holt had reaffirmed Australia's commitment to the fight. In a twist on Johnson's election slogan, he promised to go all the way with LBJ in Vietnam and send more troops. Johnson's visit was in part a thank you to Holt and in part to curry favour with the Australian public. I do not know how many Australian faces I have looked into or how many Australian hands I've shaken during the last three and a half days. What matters is what your faces and your hands have said to me. The message is that the vast majority of the American and Australian people are together all the way on the battlefield and in the search for peace. 
There was some opposition to the war, but in 1966, the Australian public was still broadly in favour. A few months after Johnson's visit, Holt's Liberal Party won a general election in a landslide against an anti-war, anti-conscription Labour opposition. Australia would eventually send around 60,000 troops to Vietnam. 523 died. In time, as in America, Johnson's war in Vietnam became deeply unpopular. But in 1966, there was still such adulation for the American president that a crowd serenaded him at a reception in Canberra. In 1964, the Australian ambassador in Washington had advised that Australia should aim to achieve such an habitual closeness of relations with the United States and sense of mutual alliance that in our time of need, the United States would have little option but to respond as we would want. The problem of Vietnam is one, it seems, where we could pick up a lot of credit. Australia once looked to Britain for its security, but now relies on its ally across the Pacific. It's fought with America in every major conflict since World War I. Whoever's in the White House will hope that pattern continues should war break out with China. Charlotte, Brits tend to think of themselves as very steadfast allies of America and have fought alongside the US in a lot of wars. But even Britain sat out the Vietnam War which Australia didn't, which is pretty remarkable. Yes, I agree that's notable. And I was looking at some of the polling of what Australians think of America because it seems almost impossible to me that the public could give such wholehearted support to America given America's political ups and downs. And there was a really interesting figure, I thought, from a poll last year that said that 87% of Australians thought that the alliance with America was important. Equally interesting was that 77% thought that that alliance would make it more likely that Australia would be drawn into a war that was not in Australia's interest. So the fact that those two things can be true seemed striking to me. So Anton, I wonder if you could speak to that, because the poll suggests some disquiet about allying Australia so closely with America, while also viewing that alliance as inevitable and simply part of Australia's general stance toward the world. So tell me about that. How can both those things be true? I think that the Australians are trying to balance two fears. One is an old fear of abandonment. As we mentioned earlier, it's a very large country, a continent-sized island with a very small population, 27 million. So it has historically committed troops to the wars of its protectors, first Britain and then the United States. The Australians have fought in many places. There are graves of Australian soldiers across half the world. They fought in Gallipoli with the British, which is the allied amphibious landings to try and defeat the Ottoman Empire, Turkey at the time. They proved disastrous, as amphibious landings often are. And the Australians felt that they paid a disproportionate price for that. Nevertheless, they continued to fight alongside Britain in the Second World War. And indeed, it went to Vietnam when a lot of countries, including Britain, didn't go. So that is part of the sense that Australia must be willing to pay a blood price to maintain a relationship with the external protector. At the same time, there's a fear of entanglement, partly caused by Vietnam, a war that went badly wrong, 
But, you know, also Gallipoli was a terrible shock to Australians. And indeed, the defeat of the British in Singapore was a, a wake-up call. And in 1941, the Australian prime minister famously makes a turn where he says, you know, we now look to America. We no longer look to Britain. We now look to America. We're very fond of Britain. We're very close to them. But we now look to America as our principal ally. And that's the way it's been since, since the Second World War. Now, Historians will tell you there have been ups and downs in that relationship. There were anti-American riots in Brisbane at one point because the Americans were better fed, better treated, and were taking all the women away to marry them off and taking them back to America. But nevertheless, the mateship, as they call it, has been a powerful force since those days. And Charlotte, those twin fears that Anton describes of abandonment on the one hand and entanglement on the other seem to be present again in Australian attitudes towards AUKUS, the deal signed with America to make nuclear-powered submarines. Right. So I'm really interested in hearing, Anton, your view of this. That AUKUS deal, the main part of it are these nuclear subs that have a longer range and greater capabilities than current submarines, but they wouldn't have them for more than 15 years, right? And in my mind, some of the more interesting stuff included in AUKUS is not necessarily the submarines, the long-term submarines, but are the interim American and British subs that will be available. And also these working groups to collaborate on everything from AI to cyber defense and hypersonic missiles. And there was this report from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute that showed China with a lead in 37 of 44 key technologies, which made a bit of a stir. And the AUKUS deal has elements to try to counter that. So What's the status of the AUKUS deal? Which are the most important parts in your mind? How should we think about the time frame over which that deal will play out in advancing Australian and American security? It's a generation-long effort. The AUKUS submarine, these are submarines that are being designed by Britain with American nuclear propulsion in them a technology the Americans have only ever shared with Britain in the past. The crown jewels of military technology are being shared with Australia. The first boats will not appear until the 2040s. So Australia has no nuclear industry, so it needs to develop nuclear know-how, it needs to develop the capability to operate nuclear submarines. That's going to take a generation of training, and the first cadets are actually being trained up in the States as we speak. In the meantime, though, the threat from China, if you listen to strategists, could appear any time in the coming few years. 2027 is the date when the Chinese say they want the capability, not necessarily the intent, but the capability to be able to invade Taiwan should they ever need to. And the American modernization of its armed forces doesn't really kick into gear until 2030. So you talk to some people and they think there's a window of vulnerability. So what are they going to do about that long gap? The answer is for America to build more submarines, but that takes a long time. The other aspect of AUKUS is the so-called Pillar 2, where there's an awful lot of stuff that will be delivered, they hope, sooner, possibly within months, but in the next few years. And that includes work on hypersonic missiles, which are more difficult to intercept than ballistic missiles and cruise missiles. And there's lots of other technology in cyber and so on. Most of it is classified. We don't know what's involved. And this amount, if it's done correctly, amounts to an integration of the defense industrial bases of the United States, Australia, and Britain, which means the Americans abandoning some of the rules, such as the so-called ITAR, that protects American know-how. And again, 
you're going to have to sell that to the State Department, which polices ITAR, and to people in Congress. And as you know, everything is difficult in Congress. That may be understatement of the year. Okay, we'll be back in a moment to get a view of America from a colleague in Australia. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Nell Whitehead is The Economist's Australia correspondent. From her perch in Sydney, she told me how Australia sees its place in the world. Australia is a country whose worldview has kind of always been shaped by what it is, which is a really huge island continent that has not very many people in it and is distant from its main strategic allies. So that's kind of always given it a degree of strategic anxiety. So Australia's kind of always relied on a great and powerful friend, so a bigger partner, first in Britain and then for most of the last century in America. Separately, it's a country that's kind of learnt as a middle power to project its influence through kind of multilateralism, through alliance building. That's not just alliance building with America. You think of things like the Quad. It's edging closer to Japan as well. And through championing kind of multilateralism and championing free trade. So it needs that kind of system. It is a trading nation that needs a kind of open system of trade and a strong rules-based order to prosper. It's also a country that has this kind of tension because it has depended on China for most of this century, at least, for its prosperity because it's traded so heavily with it. So it's had this kind of old tension in its sort of strategic position that it could rely on America for its security and on China for its prosperity. And that idea kind of died in Canberra with Chinese expansionism and greater Chinese meddling in Australia and the trade bans and so on. So you don't hear that view kind of championed any longer. But insofar as Australia still trades really heavily with China and still depends on America for its security, it's still a kind of line that it is trying to tread in the world. We'll come back to Australia's relationship with China in a minute. But before we talk about that, I wanted to ask you about Anthony Blinken's remarks. He described Australia as being America's closest ally, which made a few Brits feel slightly jilted. Was he saying anything new there? Or was he just saying out loud something that Australians who think about foreign policy have assumed to be the case for a while? Ranking these friendships is hard. Countries are always prone to make kind of hyperbolic statements about how great their friendships are when it suits them. But you know, Australian leaders have been kind of professing mateship and strategic closeness with America for decades, right? There's been iterations of this kind of language used for years and years. You can go back to the middle of the last century, probably, on that front. And I think, yes, Australia has a decent claim to being America's best mate in the sense that it is the only country that has followed America into every major conflict of the 20th century and the 21st century. It's the one that American officials think would be most likely to follow it in the eventuality of a war with China as well. I guess that what Australia appreciates is its sort of strategic position. It's obviously not a military power, but it matters and its partnership with America matters because 
They share similar views on China and on the risks posed by Chinese expansionism. They share intelligence. And Australia is obviously geographically very important for China as well as a launch pad into Asia. You know, and I think I would add as well, you know, important diplomatically, because Australia has worked really hard to kind of draw American interest and to sustain it, especially in the Pacific, where it's a member of the Pacific Islands Forum, which is the kind of big regional grouping. At times, there's been concern about America's commitment to the Indo Pacific, notably under the Trump presidency. And Australia has worked really hard to kind of sustain American interest and project American interests through the Indo Pacific. I think it was Bush that described Australia as America's sheriff in the region, which is kind of a term that's been conscripted now by China and is used against Australia. But, you know, it plays a big role in alliance building and forging partnerships in the region. You talked earlier about the tension whereby Australia has this close security and foreign policy alliance with the US, but has historically sought close economic ties with China. A few years ago, it seemed just about possible to walk that line, but it must be getting harder and harder. Is this something that foreign policy types still think is possible? Or has Australia in practice made its choice already? It's made its choice. To be clear, I think this argument is not one that you hear in the halls of power in Canberra any longer. It's not one that is espoused by officials. I think Australians are very clear-eyed about the strategic risks that China poses. For a long time, you know, I think they've felt the threat posed by Chinese expansionism and militarization for longer than a lot of other partners and a lot of other Anglophone countries. They feel it kind of quite viscerally. And they started responding to that kind of back in 2017 with things like bans on Huawei and 5G network with foreign interference laws that have since been emulated in places like Britain and Canada. Obviously, they've had to deal with Chinese economic coercion in the form of trade bans and tariffs imposed on Australia in 2020. So Australia is very clear eyed about the risk that China poses and its people are very hawkish about China as well. They view it now as more of a strategic risk than an economic partner. Also, the polling tells us. So that old kind of narrative that Australia could kind of have its cake and eat it too, could get its security from America while it got its prosperity from China has kind of died in the rhetorical sense. You know, I guess... In practice, China remains by far its biggest trading partner. Trade actually increased during the time that China's trade bans were imposed, partly because of how high commodity prices were. And it's surging now that some of those bans are starting to come off as well. So through all of this, China has remained unequivocally Australia's most important trading partner. And there are lots of kind of businesses and institutions running back to China now that the relationship is stabilising a little bit under the current Labour government. So it's an interesting kind of tension, I suppose. I mean, no strategist believes that Australia can kind of tread this line between the two, but there are a lot of people doing business still with China. They know the risks. They've seen what can happen in terms of trade bans. But in a practical way, Australia kind of continues to have to manage that tension, I suppose. Anton, this feels like a good place to talk about Australia's relationship with China, which is in turn part of its strategic alliance with the US. I mean, China retaliated in a pretty forceful way. I mean, it put an 80% tariff on Australian barley exports. As Nell mentioned, there was a ban on coal exports, ban on Australian wine, lobsters, 
various things. Australia seems to have weathered that fairly well. But one thing that it's done, I think, has underlined for Australians how perilous it is to have China as your largest trading partner. Yes, and it is also telling that in general, China, especially as it's run into economic problems, has toned down its whole wolf warrior diplomacy. I think there's a growing realization that it is counterproductive. It has alienated countries around the region and making America's job a lot easier in stitching together these partnerships and alliances. So I think there's a sort of more modulated view. And I think it is also, you know, it's a new government. It's not the liberal government, i.e. the conservative government. It's a Labour government. And I think they hope that Anthony Albanese will prove to be less hostile. Having said that, he seems to be full in on AUKUS and the whole alliance building with America. I'm curious in both your views on the question I'm about to ask, because when I look at Australia's response to China, I wonder if America has lessons to learn from Australia rather than the other way around. Because China, as we've said, is Australia's biggest trading partner, and The Economist has an index of exposure to China, which includes exports of goods and services, but also revenue of multinationals operating in China and Hong Kong. And Australia's exposure to China is double that of America's. If you think about the torturous process in America of thinking about decoupling from China or reducing economic reliance on China, Australia has that problem literally twice over. I've been so interested in the way that Australia was able to pivot and respond to pretty aggressive economic measures from China. It didn't seek to shame China at the WTO. It pursued other trade agreements in the interim while trade was blocked up with China, so with India and Britain, with the EU. It has some leverage in dealing with China because China wants to join the successor to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the acronym for which is the CPTPP. I think I have that right. And so in many ways, I view those economic levers that Australia has as being an example of what America should be doing. So I don't just have the lattice work of strategic military relationships, but also do much more to have a lattice work of economic relationships in the region. And Australia has done that quite effectively. So what do you think about that? I mean, do you think that there are lessons for America in how Australia has dealt with China to date? Well, there's no doubt that the great missing element of America's Indo-Pacific strategy is the lack of an economic pillar. This administration is, I won't say as protectionist as the Trump administration, but is not very fond of trade agreements. And the one thing that countries in Asia want are better trade terms with America, access to markets, and so on. And this is a difficulty. I mean, to the point that even military people talk to me about you know, what are we going to do about the CPTPP and the fact that, you know, America won't join it. So America's friends in the Indo-Pacific are trying to keep the door open for it, trying to say, come back into the agreement. I myself think that you could probably sell some of it on the basis of security and the competition with China, but it is extremely difficult to get any kind of trade agreement going. So, you know, they're looking for ersatz deals, ersatz arrangements to do with supply chains. The United States needs to think harder about how it deals with the economic dimension of its strategy. Because for a lot of countries in Asia, China is and remains and will be the biggest trading partner. I think this question of the lessons Australia has for America in dealing with China is really interesting. And Charlotte, I think you hinted at this, but one thing that we've written about in The Economist is that when China put those bans or those huge tariffs 
on Australian products. Australia was able quite quickly to shift to selling those products elsewhere. So the coal, instead of going to China, went to India, say, or the barley, instead of going to China, went to other countries in Southeast Asia. I think if we had one of our colleagues who covers trade on the podcast, they'd say, yes, that's right. But you have to remember that Australia is a much smaller economy than the US. If you take the American economy and the Chinese economy together, they account for such a large share of world trade and world GDP that the prospect of disentangling them totally, you know, the idea of two separate blocks, A, it would be really hard, and B, were it to happen, it's not the case that you could just find another China-sized or American-sized market to make up for that demand. So it would be much, much more painful than the tariffs on Australian goods, you know, painful as they seem to have been. I agree with that completely. And I think the main important lesson from the way Australia was able to deal with those Chinese tariffs and the bans on certain imports is not necessarily that they were able to rewrote exports and imports in the way you just described, but rather that they realized that long-term they needed to build up stronger trading relationships with other parties. So yes, China remains hugely important now, but in future you want to sign more trade agreements with more countries, not fewer, to boost economic resilience. But as Anton outlined, the politics of trade in America are, of course, abysmal. I just raised the Australian example as a real-world case in illustrating how counterproductive that can be for both economic and security interests of America in the long term. Anton, one of the things Nell talked about was anti-American sentiment in Australia. It's not particularly widespread, but it's there, as you'd expect, in a vibrant democracy. Did you pick up any of that on your trip? It's there, particularly on the left and particularly etched by the experience of Vietnam. But it's not very strong, I would say, at the moment. There are, however, worries about all this. One worry is just the sheer cost These submarines are extremely expensive, several times the annual defense budget of Australia. So the risk is whether they're affordable and whether they're going to hollow out all the other military capabilities that the Australians need. A second set of concerns has to do with sovereignty, whether the Australians really will be able to take decisions independently of the United States. And the third concern, I think, has to do with the risk of being a target for Chinese attack if a war were ever to break out, particularly if there are nuclear attack submarines trying to knock out Chinese ballistic missile submarines. So, you know, you can imagine, I spoke to Bob Carr, a former Australian foreign minister, who said, you know, this exposes us to attack, possibly nuclear attack which is obviously worrying, but that's a worry that every ally of America must contend with. The difference, I think, is that in the Indo-Pacific, there's this very real sense that there is a potential and real war looming over Taiwan that, unlike the war in Ukraine, could draw America in directly and therefore draw in Australia and other allies in directly. Therefore, the danger feels more real. Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot. Is Australia really America's closest ally? America is a global power. It has lots of best friends, and it has special names for each one of them. So the relationship with Britain is a special relationship. The relationship with France is the oldest alliance. The relationship with Japan is a cornerstone of Indo-Pacific stability. 
I think the Australians are important because America cares increasingly about China, and therefore they are the closest to their way of thinking and seeing the world. They need Japan. Japan is a huge industrial power, and it's also very close to China, but it's so close that all of America's bases may get knocked out very quickly in a war. Australia is the more secure base, both politically and in terms of military capacity and ability to deploy. Well, perhaps it's cheering for our American listeners to be reminded that despite everything that's going on in American domestic politics, there are still countries all around the world competing to be America's best friend. All right, let's leave that here for now. Anton, you know what's coming next, and this is why you're really here. It's quiz time. And we have... Anton has such a look of dignified resignation at the moment. <laughs> Listeners should know. I feel I'm about to be hazed by... <laughs> Definitely not going to be hazed. You should know that there's no hazing that happens unless it includes me as a victim. Anton, we've got something special for you this week. As we mentioned earlier, we have lots of listeners in Australia. And you may remember that one of them, Chris, sent us a question for our Q&A episode earlier this year. We thought, who better to set a quiz on Australian political trivia than one of our Australian listeners? So over to Chris. Hi, my name is Chris. I'm an avocado farmer from the Gold Coast, Queensland, Australia. This week, I have some Australian politics trivia to see which of the gang are closest to being a true blue Aussie. For the first question, I'm going to read out the names of four political parties and the gang have to guess which of the four is not a real political party that contested a recent election in Australia. The four political parties are A, the Hunters, Shooters and Fishers Party, B, the Pirate Party, C, the Great Barrier Reef Divers Alliance, and D, the Cyclists Party. So there you have it, guys. That is so good. I mean, if I can't win American quizzes, the chances of me winning an Australian quiz are nil, but I'll go with the Pirate Party. I'm going to go for the Great Barrier Reef Party because it's such an obvious red herring or a red coral fish. Mm. Let's hear the answer. The made-up one here is the Great Barrier Reef Divers Alliance. The other three parties have all contested elections in Australia in the last 10 years. Oh, so good, Anton. I want to know the platform for the Great Pirate Party and the Cyclist Party. Yeah, we'll have to. Also, how many signatures do you need to form a party in Australia? It must be like 10. How many pirates are there in Australia? That is a question. Enough for a party. So at least two. Question two. Voting is compulsory in Australia. While registered voters who do not attend the polls may be fined, voters who do turn up on ballot day are traditionally met with what tasty reward? A, a shrimp off the barbie. B, a meat pie. Or C, a sausage in bread. A sausage what? A sausage in bread, what you would call a hot dog. Oh, um, I hope it's a meat pie. I'm not sure why, but I'd like to have a meat pie after I vote. I would say a meat pie as well. It's a great Aussie delicacy and very good too. Let's hear the answer to this one. The answer here is C, a sausage in bread, or the democracy sausage, as we like to call it. All right. You have to witness the sausage being made. Yeah, exactly. That happens after you vote, I think. I was talking to somebody the other day about compulsory voting in Australia, and I learned about the democracy sausage. So for once, this is one I might have got right. It's a sausage in bread. Last question from Chris. Question three. Australians like to think of ourselves as a great sporting nation. To this end, which renowned sporting accolade was once held by a future prime minister? Is it A the NSSA College Surfing League Championship, B, the world record for sculling a yard glass of beer, or C, the Melbourne Cup horse race winner. 
world record for doing something to beer? I couldn't understand that. I'm sorry, Chris. Yes, Chris said sculling a glass of beer. You might say downing a glass of beer or if you're in a college frat house, chugging even. But the point is it's a yard long. So Mm. this is a serious quantity of beer. How thin? Good question. I think that the answer is the beer one. It's about one and a half liters of beer, for those of you who think it is. Gosh, that's a lot of beer. It's a lot of beer. Anton, what are you going with? I was going to go with the beer on the basis of bibulous politicians having to train for a lifetime of sculling, is it the word? It is. Let's hear the answer. The answer here is the world record for sculling a yard glass of beer. This record was held by Bob Hawke, who went on to be Prime Minister from 1983 to 1991. He sculled a yard glass of beer in 11 seconds. Oh, that's so gross. Or impressive. I don't know. Gross and impressive. It's the kind of thing that gets you elected as Prime Minister in Australia. Personally, I find it deeply impressive. How about you, Anton? I'm always impressed by Australians' ability to have fun, including Prime Ministers. Yeah. Well, that's it for this week. We'd like to say thanks, mate, to Chris for the quiz. Thank you also to Charlotte and to Anton. Thank you. Thank you very much. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble and Stevie Hertz. James Stickland and Nicola Rofast are our sound engineers. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. And don't forget about our new podcast subscription service, Economist Podcasts Plus. From mid-October to listen to Checks and Balance, a new weekend edition of The Intelligence, and special series like Next Year in Moscow. If you don't already have an Economist subscription, you'll need to join Economist Podcasts Plus. If you sign up now, it's half price, just £24.50 or $24.50 for the whole year. To sign up, go to economist.com slash podcasts plus, or you can just click on the link in the show notes. If you want to get in touch with us via email, the address for that is podcasts, plural, at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe, stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. You're used to reading The Economist and hearing us talk on podcasts. Now join us for live events in America in October. In New York, on October 2nd, our editor-in-chief, Zanny Mittenbedos, will discuss China, Russia, and the new geopolitics with Shashank Joshi and Drum Tower hosts David Rennie and Alice Sue. In Washington, on October 3rd, Zanny will discuss the war in Ukraine and the future of global order with Shashank, Anton Lagardia, who you've just heard, and Arkady Ostrovsky, who made the podcast Next Year in Moscow. To learn more, go to economist.com slash American events. The link is also in the show notes to this episode. I'll be at these events too, and hope to see you there. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.